You're listening to the best barbecue show, and this week's episode is with Dr. Sarah Place. She's part of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, and she works on sustainable management of livestock production systems, uh, mostly focusing on research opportunities to improve the economic, social, and environmental facets of livestock production in concert. What does that mean? Well, you can read many of her articles on cattle, sustainability, and climate, and follow her on Twitter, Dr. S. Place, that's D-R-S-P-L-A-C-E. I also put her Twitter handle in the description of this episode. If you want the true story on beef and the environment, I think you'll love this episode. We even talk about quantifiable, low-stress environments for cattle and how to manage a herd in the gentlest way. Uh, One of the terms that I really liked was animal husbandry. I even learned one out of seven ranchers is from Texas, so that's pretty cool. She teaches at universities, to dietitians, restaurant owners, chefs, small businesses, butchers, and picks the best brains across the country in the cattle industry. There's a reason why I never waste a bite of barbecue. Dr. Place is the ultimate defender of meat and the environment, and she epitomizes the respect that people of the beef industry have for every animal. So enjoy this episode with Dr. Sarah Place. <laughs> uh, thank you for watching and or listening to The Best Barbecue Show. Uh, I've been in North Carolina and Asheville for three days with certified Angus beef, and I'm super excited to sit down with Dr. Sarah Place. Uh, welcome. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, and tell, tell us a little bit about what you do, uh, kind of who you are in the beef world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I work for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Um, I'm the senior director for sustainability research. So essentially, uh, beef farmers and ranchers, they invest dollars in research. And um, some of that research that we do is on sustainability issues. So things like greenhouse gas emissions or water use, those kind of hot topic issues. We do research and, uh, and benchmark where we're at as an industry. And what are some of the things that, that you know, are maybe misconceptions or things that you're, you're often debunking about beef? Mm-hmm. I think we hear so much, um, I'm sure your listeners have even heard about uh, cattle and climate change, right? It's kind of a hot topic today. Um, and so, you know, cattle do produce greenhouse gas emissions, but I think it's a lot lower than people often think, you know. So according to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, uh, 2% of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States can be attributed to beef cattle. So it's not nothing, but it's also not a huge amount that people sometimes assume. And uh, can you tell us more about where you, you know, how you became a doctor and kind of what you studied (laughs) to get here? Yeah, 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 sure. So I'm from a dairy farm in upstate New York um, and uh, have always been interested in agriculture and the environment. And so I was lucky to go to UC Davis for my PhD um, and did work actually measuring methane from cattle, uh, which is just a disclaimer. If, if you're thinking about that right now, cow gas, you know, it actually comes out the front end of the animal, not the back end. Um, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I did four years as, as uh, an academic at uh, Oklahoma State University on faculty there uh, doing teaching and research and then have been in this job for almost three years now, started in December of 2016. Wow. And is that Upstate Farms that you lived in? or? 
Is that what you were part of the dairy farm? Yeah, was, yeah, definitely. I've definitely milked a few cows in my life and uh, and done a lot of that. So my parents actually sold the cows when I went to grad school because that was the end of free labor. Uh, my brother, <laughs> my brother is still in the business um, at a different farm, and so all my family are still involved in production agriculture all the time. That's that's amazing. I grew up drinking Upstate Farm, so. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. it's so cool to to meet someone who is a part of that because I I drove by you know on on all the highways in, in upstate New York that you drive by all the the cattle farms and all the the dairy producers. It's, yeah, uh, yeah, no, and I'm sorry when you said that I thought you meant just upstate. I, I know what you're talking about now. The the co-op um, actually all of our milk went to New York City. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So to to down to Queens, New York. Um, but yeah, all that all those Western New York farms. It's beautiful and that's a great local brand of you know. You're drinking the product of that local area, right? It's pretty cool. Well, and uh, I went to school in New Paltz, so mm-hmm. uh, I've gotten to really see all of New York State. And people don't realize that it's uh, so agricultural. They just, when people hear New York, they oh, think yeah. Manhattan. I've told people, like, I lived almost to Canada, and they mm-hmm. still are like, so you grew up in Manhattan, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. It, yeah, we always kind of joke that that's, yeah, I'm from upstate New York, a.k.a. southern Canada, right? Yeah, that's kind of exactly. where we're from, yeah. Uh, and so now you're in Denver mm-hmm. uh, at the Cattlemen's Association. Yes. And yes. what's what's a what's a day at the association like? Uh, so it's it's very varied. So um, a lot of what my work is, like I said, is is doing research. So a lot of it's actually um, collaborating with people at USDA or other universities around the United States. Um, and then I do a lot of like speaking engagements and a lot of media interviews, just mainly because this is such a hot topic right now. Um, the grand irony of my job is I fly a lot, right? I fly a lot to talk about climate change, which I was going to joke, you know, uh, I may be the biggest driver of our carbon footprint <laughs> as an industry, but um, but it is important to get that message out there and get the science out there because, again, there's there's a big gap between right now what we have as perception versus reality on a lot of these issues. And do you feel like, you know, I, I in the podcasting world, in the barbecue world, I know that it takes a lot of repetition for people mm-hmm. to understand a subject. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing people kind of understanding what you're putting out there? Do you feel like you are repeating yourself? Or I, I know it, it's going to take a lot for mm-hmm. people to get your message. Yeah, I think, um, you know, what I found is a good tool out there is, you know, using social media. So I, I try to be try to be active on, on Twitter, you know, sharing a lot of cow facts, if you will. Um, hashtag cow facts. Ha- hashtag cow facts, not cow farts, right? Um, <laughs> And so that's that's one of the ways that we get out there. And yeah, every time every time we speak, and oftentimes to um, even uh, audiences that aren't necessarily be friendly, you know, the message is well received. It's just it's just that amplification challenge of getting out there. And, and uh, to your point, you got to repeat it a lot of times. Sustainability is such a complex topic. You know, climate change is so complex. It's hard for people to understand at first, which you know that's why there's so much confusion out there. Well, and. Uh I have a I have a, a a long history of the environment. I worked in uh, New York with an environmental group. I had a job with Greenpeace mm-hmm. a long time ago, mm-hmm. and uh, I learned. I actually Greenpeace taught me more about, uh, you know, eating what you want and enjoying your life than really fighting to to be one way or another. Mm-hmm. And I, I like how there's almost like a diet fluidity happening mm-hmm. in the world where mm-hmm. people realize you don't have to be. Just because you eat, you could eat vegetarian five days a week, but that doesn't mean you have you're a vegetarian. Mm-hmm. You know, we can all be omnivores. That's mm-hmm. what we were exactly. kind of evolved to be. Right. And uh, are you seeing in Denver and the places you go? Are you seeing people a little more? You know, maybe they maybe they eat meat every every day of the week. Maybe they take meatless Mondays. There's all these 
these ideas, but are you, are you seeing people being a little less stressed about like picking one side? Um, yes and no, right? I think there is that, that kind of idea of flexitarianism or, you know, essentially to your point, right? It's like all these different terms for just like what we are, omnivores, right? People eat, people eat both things. Um, I think there's also sometimes though, what I worry about with a lot of this environmental stuff and, and people arguing, you know, you should eat this, not that for the environment is it does kind of put more stress on people for their food choices when it is like, first and foremost, like take care of yourself in terms of nutritional needs and hopefully enjoy your food, whatever it is, right? Um, so I think that's what's really key is like from that standpoint, um, what we're seeing at the macro level is, you know, people are still eating just as much meat as ever, you know. Um, they maybe are distributing it during their week a little bit differently, um, but it's pretty consistent. And again, yeah, people are, people are just getting a little bit more um, adventurous, I guess, with, you, with their food choices, which yeah. is kind of cool. Yeah, I, I I take people to get barbecue all the time. People kind of see me as a a, a place to go, someone to, mm -hmm. to lead them through a barbecue journey. And mm -hmm. uh, usually it starts with a couple people, but you know we end up getting four, eight. Mm -hmm. You know, once people hear that there's a, a little bar barbecue pilgrimage going on, they want to <laughs> jump in. Yeah. But I have had tons of people sit down with us that say, "Hey, don't tell anyone. I'm usually vegetarian. I'm usually this." Mm -hmm. And and I tell them, I say, "It's fine. Like mm -hmm. I'm not gonna, you know, I'll, sure. I'll cut you out of the pictures, but really, like you don't have to." I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like people self-impose this idea mm -hmm. because I don't know if they feel like they have to and they yeah. don't realize that like you, you can, I eat with vegetarians all the time. I, I throw mm -hmm. uh, barbecues where I smoke amazing vegetable. I make, I always make a dish that, or at least a couple dishes that, that, that people that don't eat meat can eat because right. those are also delicious things that I make. Right. Yeah. And, and it's, it's kind of, we're so lucky, you know, in 2019 to have all that available food and to be able to, to, to have all those different dietary patterns. Right. So that's to your point though, I just, I hope people realize like whether it's over environmental issues or whatever other issues, like don't, don't worry about your food choices that much, right? Don't yeah. feel that much guilt about it. It's, it's okay. And I think that's what in the industry we see is like, that's the message we want to get across to people is like, it's how it gets to your plate and what we've been working on what our cattle yeah. producers have been working on to make sure that, you know, today compared to 10 years from now in 10 years, it's going to be even better. It's going to be more sustainable. Right. And we're, we're always on that progress of getting better over time. Well, that's an amazing fact that I learned that there's actually less cattle now mm -hmm. but it's just more efficient mm -hmm. there the the industry is figuring out how to get more beef out of each cow mm -hmm. rather than just raising more cattle exactly so that's really key when it comes to sustainability is this whole idea of doing more with less right and in addition to being good just stewards of um of the environment right so compared to 1975 that's really when we peaked in the united states uh, in terms of number of cattle, the number of cattle has gone down. So actually, just last year, we could produce the same amount of beef in the U.S. with 36% fewer cattle compared to 1975. Like that's amazing, right? In those in that short amount of time, really. So that means fewer greenhouse gas em emissions. It means less natural resources just to make uh, beef. And. Do you feel like, is that a trend? I know that there's, for especially for certified Angus beef, there's certain weight limits, there's certain things that you want. Are you seeing that efficiency go up? Are we going to see in the next few years even less cattle that's more efficient? Or Yeah, I think that trend's going to continue. You know, it's, it's what's really cool. I'm, really, I'm an animal scientist, right? So right. I kind of geek out about all the science stuff. But our producers are really... 
um, focused on all those areas where they can keep changing that, right? So that's what's cool about, you know, brands like Certified Angus Beef is like you're still getting a really quality eating experience. It's not that when animals get more efficient that somehow the quality is less or that their quality of life is less, right? It's like all moving those things all together. Um, so the genetics of cattle, how we feed cattle, and then just just basic husbandry practices, how we manage those animals are really the key drivers that have got us to this point now and will in the future, right? Um, so just like we have big data with all sorts of other things in, yeah. our, in our society, we're, we're doing the same thing with, with agriculture, right? We're taking all this, collecting all this information and making more informed decisions. Um, and that's, that's really what's driving a lot of this. Do you, I mean, what, what, what's your, what's your favorite thing to geek out on? It sounds like you see a lot of spreadsheets <laughs> and graphs. Uh, yeah, I think, well, again, cause I am an animal scientist. My, my favorite, I'm just telling people about is like cows are amazing, right? Like in terms of what they do. Um, and I know some people don't want to think about that when they're, when they're eating their meat, but essentially, um, you know, cattle have this amazing uh, digestive system, this amazing stomach that allows them to eat stuff that we can't. Um, and this whole idea of what they're doing is essentially upcycling, right? They're taking something that we can't eat uh, and making a higher quality product. And really what allows that are all these microbes that live in their digestive system. So a cow's stomach, just to give people a frame of reference, the rumen of their stomach is 40 or 50 gallons in volume. So that's like the size of your bathtub, right? And it's just this big fermentation vat. Uh, with all these microbes. So just like one little cc of rumen contents has more microbes in it than there are people on planet Earth, Wow! right? Um, so it's this whole little ecosystem in and of itself. And that's what gives these cattle these, this essentially upcycling superpower, this ability to take uh, solar energy that's locked up in plants like grass, right, that we can't eat and make this delicious product from it. Well, and the incredible thing I've been learning is that the the size of a ranch, the, the cow per acre from east to west coast is drastically different. You might have 10 times the space per cow in Texas where in the grasslands in Kansas and South Dakota, you have these prairies that are super efficient. They, they grow these beautiful grasses. And I, I also learned about how those grasses, they just grow. So you almost, all you have to do is keep the trees and the weeds out and you've got this natural place for the cows to convert, yeah. you know, turn photosynthesis into delicious meat. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So it is, it is really interesting. That's what's kind of cool about the beef industry is it takes place in all 50 states. So what works in one area is not necessarily going to work in another area. Um, But what we know is like, yeah, where cattle thrive and where they tend to be or where we have grasslands, right? Um, And a lot of it is in in the middle part of the country. Uh, and to your point, you know, it really depends on how much moisture you get per year, or how these ranchers are managing their ranch, how many cattle they can actually support. And there's a lot of folks doing things like rotational grazing, right, and making sure that they're kind of matching what the animal needs with what the plants need, right? Because a lot of our farmers, they think of themselves, they say, I'm a grass farmer, and I just use cattle to, to harvest the grass, right. right? Like, that's what they're doing. Um, so they're thinking about, how do I manage this landscape? And they're using cattle as a tool to manage the landscape. Well, and, and that idea is so, it's so obvious to people like us, but others don't, maybe not realize that they're really, we're turning grass into something good. Mm-hmm. We're, uh, um, we were talking, I was talking to some of the ranchers uh, a couple of days ago. And I was telling them that they could make some really funny shirts, like we grow great grass or we love our grass. <laughs> and uh, it, it's it's so interesting 
that 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 there's something that's this efficient uh, mm-hmm. and that people like you are working so hard to take these animals kind of to the next level mm-hmm. is there you know it seems like it's all in degrees is there kind of a a, a, a way that are you studying cattle in, in all different places is that what you're flying around and doing are you mostly just sharing the knowledge what what's What's a what's a travel trip like here? Obviously, you you have a, mm-hmm. a captivated room of people mm-hmm. that want to hear every word you've got to talk mm-hmm. about. But are you uh, are you also kind of ch- checking out the cows all over America? Yeah, when I'm when I'm uh, able to get out to ranches, is, those are some of the the f- funnest trips that I take. Right. Um, so I've been lucky with this job to kind of go to places that I never would, right? So, for example, like going to Florida, right outside of Walt Disney World, there's a lot of cattle in Florida. They're like the really? number 12 cow-calf state in the, the United States, right? So, um, and seeing some of those ranches and the idea of, like, having cattle, like, you know, close to water and you had to worry about, like, alligators and stuff, right? That's a totally different environment compared wow. to being on the, like, the U.S.-Mexico border, right? I had a chance to go down there, Um and actually being in such an arid environment in Arizona, right? And so just seeing that diversity, seeing what ranchers do in terms of their genetic selection for their cattle, because what works in Florida in terms of a, of a cow is very different than another part of the country, right? So that's what's cool about my job is I get to talk to people from all over the, the country and the world and also see you know, how these producers are actually implementing all these practices. And a lot of times, I mean, I'm learning from them all the while right. in terms of what they're doing. And you said you went to school in California, mm-hmm. correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, were you, did you go in thinking, I want to study large animals? I know that the smaller animals are generally more popular, mm-hmm. uh, and it's harder, to, harder and harder to find veterinarians and doctors mm-hmm. that, that are interested in, in larger cattle. So do, do you remember kind of where you went, made the switch, or were you just always interested in Yeah, I've always been animals? interested in, in large animals and this kind of intersection between the environment and animal agriculture. So, like I mentioned, the, the research I did for my PhD was on measuring methane, so actually coming up with a new way to measure methane at UC Davis with cattle. Um, to your point, yeah, we have a lot of people that are very very interested in wanting to be veterinarians that was actually never my my uh interest growing up on a farm i saw what the veterinarians did i was like yeah i don't want to do that right of uh you're always being called out on christmas or in the middle of the night when it's a bad thing right um and we need veterinarians they play such an important role but a lot of our a lot of our students nowadays they're young women which is great and a lot of them are coming from uh uh, urban environments, right? So a lot of them are interested in dogs and cats, small animals, but it's so cool to see kids that are coming from cities, major cities, first interact with animals and livestock. Um, I taught a class at UC Davis where we had to teach you know, kids that are from San Francisco and LA how to flip a sheep over and trim their hooves, which was hilarious, but also you see, you see things like light bulbs go off in these kids' heads of like, hey, I could work with large animals, even outside of being a veterinarian, I could be a professional in this industry and do do things where I'm working with animals all the while. And I think that's what's cool. Well, and, and the interesting thing is you, you learn. I've, I've had a great opportunity here to connect with the people who raise the cattle, who from birth to feedlot, you know, they, they, they have stories. They tell us so much about them. But the, the big message I've seen is, how you can get so much more done by being gentle, how you can mm-hmm. get so much more done. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, if you want to run around and crack whips, you know, you're not going to have happy cows. No. And is there, is that something that you 
is quantifiable. Mm-hmm. Um, are you seeing, you know, this the the happy cows, the being gentle, you know, adding to uh, the the quality of the meat? Yeah, that that comes down to that husbandry piece, right? Um, yes, having good husbandry practices, low stress animal handling, is a bonus for the quality of the meat, the quality of the animal's life. And just like, you know, you or I, when we're stressed, we're not doing so hot, right? And same thing with cattle. Um, they tend to be more efficient when they're in a lower stress environment, right? So it's a, it's a win-win in addition to just being the right thing to do. So we have lots of researchers that work on that around the United States. I mean, a lot of people are familiar with Dr. Temple Grand, and she's actually right up the road from me at Colorado State University. Really? Um, and she's one of the people that serves on our, on our board for what's called Beef Quality Assurance, our, our advisory board group for that. Um, and so that's that's a whole program that's out there as an educational process for our producers on what's the best way to handle animals, to manage animals. And then we do this kind of like traveling roadshow. We have what's called stockmanship and stewardship seminars, and we bring in this, these experts that are that are great at handling animals without making any verbalizations, right? Very quiet. How do you do it in the most efficient way, whether you're on horseback or whether you're on foot? Um, that's really, really important to, to do that. Now you mentioned husbandry. Is that? It's not a term I've heard mm. often. Can you can you kind of define that for us? Yeah, it's kind of just the the care and management of animals, right? I like that term just because it sounds a little less, uh, you know, cut and dry as management, right? I mean, husbandry is it's there's an art and a science to it. I guess is what I would say in terms of how you best care for animals, how you manage those animals. And. The, the scope of, you know, I, I talked a little bit about the, the amount of space people use, but there's also, I've talked to people that have 50 to 100 cows, and I've talked to people that have 1,000 mm-hmm. to 1,500 cattle. Uh, are you seeing, is it interesting to see it, that it doesn't take a lot of people? So there, there's a few people running hundreds, sometimes thousands of cows around. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you... Is it interesting to see, like, are you going to, to check out all the cattle? Are you more looking at stats, or are you actually kind of riding horses and checking it out as well? Yeah, so I'm not a big horse rider. So anytime I am going out, I'm usually on foot if I'm doing any any ranch visits or anything like that. Um, a lot of what my job is, is is looking at the stats at the macro level, right, and talking about what these trends are. And then also interacting with the producers and, you know, we did a big project where we surveyed producers all over the United States. That was a big part of getting out there and talking to people, understanding what they're doing. So then when we look at environmental impacts, we're best representing their their operations, right? We know what they're feeding their animals, how they're managing their animals. So we can model, that's what we do. We do a lot of modeling of what their greenhouse gas emissions are, those type of things. Um, But yeah, to your point, like that's, that's part of that diversity of the industry is... You know, the average herd size in the U.S. is only a little over 40 head of cattle, right, for cow-calf operations. Um, in your, your home state of Texas, there are over 100,000 cattle ranchers, right? There's over 700,000 in the whole United States, so one in seven are in, in Texas, um, which isn't surprising, right? Everything's That's bigger in Texas. State. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's, it's a third of U.S. farms, right? So it's a really big part of just the social fabric of rural America is beef cattle farming and ranching. Um, and yeah, when you get to the feedlot side of the business, uh, the operations tend to be bigger, right? And then you have uh, just you know a few people managing lar- larger numbers of animals. So it's that diversity of the industry that's always fascinating is how how people are successful at all those different stages. Uh, so when you talk about the macro, are you 
Like you must have a team. You must have other people helping you crunch the numbers. And do you get to do you get to present that? Do you get to go to these? Sounds like you're teaching classes at universities. Are you doing that as well when you're traveling, or is that more of a Denver thing? So we we sometimes do um, you know university trips. So I'll, coming up, I'll be at Kansas State University for a few days. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of you know audiences from like dietitians to chefs, other culinary people. Um, to you know, food technologists, all sorts of people, right? Whoever has questions about sustainability, we'll give presentations to. And uh, in terms of my team, that's kind of what we do is like we contract out a lot of the research to work with uh, universities and USDA. So a lot of the, the, the researchers I collaborate with and I'm calling up or emailing all the while or other people that are in this all the while and, and doing it from a university perspective. And we, we do that collaboration of you know, I can't do it all myself, so we need to pick the best brains across the country, if you will, to, to help us when, when needed. I bet you have some pretty interesting people on speed dial. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Are there people, you know, have, have you had any big realizations? Have you had some phone calls where you just, you saw some big changes, or is there anything that, that, that really stands out in the last few years that you've seen about the beef industry? Uh, I think this uh, this thing I mentioned earlier, this upcycling piece, is what's really interesting. We've we've got some research at Texas A&M University and at UC Davis on this of looking at, Gig you know, yeah, 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 <laughs> of, of looking at, um, you know, how much protein do we essentially generate for the human food supply from cattle that wouldn't exist without them? So meaning, you know, when we think about all these grasses and stuff that cattle eat that we can eat. Um, how much essentially nutrients are they adding because they're consuming stuff that we can't eat, but yet they're making a very bioavailable protein for us. So that's been some of the cool research is it gets really nerdy really quick, a lot of math, but it's, it's essentially calculating that human nutritional value in addition to the environmental like impacts and thinking about this as a bigger, bigger picture has been really interesting. Well, and in Texas, uh, you know, we're, we're taking briskets, Mm -hmm. which are, by the pound seem cheap, but then when you cook it for 15 hours, you know, the, the labor costs, it's, it's, a, it's often not the thing that they're making the best margin on, but it's the thing you have to have in, mm-hmm. in Texas barbecue. It's mm-hmm. the thing that everyone's cooking. People so expects, yeah. yeah. And we found a lot of restaurants are creating efficiencies. They're taking some of the trim and making burgers. Mm-hmm. They're taking the fat, turning mm-hmm. it into tallow, mm-hmm. maybe reintroducing that fat into... Uh, some of the smoked meats or using that to fry something mm-hmm. or to deep fry or there's a guy that um, he fries all his chicken and makes kind of the oil bath that mm. he seasons the chicken with out of tallow as well. Cool. Do you see people trying to use every piece, you know, mm-hmm. uh, soups like pho and those bone mm-hmm. soups are getting a lot more popular mm-hmm. in America? Mm-hmm. Are you seeing a lot of that wherever you go? Yeah. So we, we like to think that we use everything but the moo when it comes to cattle, right? So even all, of course, hides and you yeah. know, a lot of pharmaceuticals get generated from cattle and even heart valves are coming from cattle from really? their from the, the outer layer of their heart. So all sorts of cool stuff. But at the restaurant level, yeah, that's, that's exciting, those trends. What we do know from our sustainability research is any waste, especially at the consumer end of, of the supply chain, is very impactful in terms of sustainability impacts. So... Maybe that'll make sense, right? If you think about the life cycle of cattle, it can take like two years, right, for that brisket to make it. Right. And so, you know, not to guilt your listeners, right, but essentially if you think about it, you throw some of that brisket away, I mean, you're threw away two years worth of inputs, right, yeah. into that system. 
So that's what we we're always you know interested in. Like, how can we help people, even consumers, regular consumers, think about how can they do meal planning or come up with other ways to take care of leftovers? Because food waste, whether it's beef or anything else, is one of the most wasteful things that we do. Right? We're we're generating all the impacts of producing that food, and then we're just throwing it away. And then it usually goes to a landfill, and guess what? It makes methane gas, which is a greenhouse gas there, too. And probably a lot more than the cattle do. <laughs> it's almost the equivalent, the amount of methane that comes from landfills compared to cattle. So, yeah. Yeah, I must, uh, I, I'm a big fan of leftovers. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm often dressing up ramen or making, mm-hmm. you know, I take the bones and I make soups. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I love um, the yard birds, the chickens mm-hmm. that people make in Texas. So I'm always mm-hmm. keeping those bones and mm-hmm. making stocks. I have, my freezer right now is full of bones. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I just, I don't know if it's the way I grew up, um, but to me, it's like, if I don't clean my plate, I'm mm-hmm. not, I'm taking that with me because mm-hmm. that even if it's just one piece of steak, that's something that I can put into a sandwich. That's something mm-hmm. that I can put into some yeah. noodles to give it that extra yeah. flavor. And I love the idea that you're advocating those things because it is it's so much work goes into this mm-hmm. even vegetables you know there's so oh, much work that goes into Absolutely. growing these things All there's the so labor. much water yeah. yeah the labor yeah and it, it's it's so much better to just just save it i i i have uh i've had roommates for a long time and it's funny to me to see they kind of bring home leftovers and let them go bad and i'll, mm-hmm. I'll be like hey <laughs> this looks like you know it's been in there for two days. I'm going to eat it if you're not going mm-hmm, to, you know. Mm-hmm. And I food waste to me is is the biggest. I, I just I almost want to go to some of these barbecue places. I see people kind of walk away from a platter. And I'm like, I'm going to take their brisket too because yeah. I know how much work. Just Even just the, preparing the brisket, yeah, right? The, the 24 hours of work yes. that it took to make that brisket, and yeah. it's great that um, you know that's a focus because. We can probably save a ton of trash. We can probably oh, yeah. save a ton of pollution. Just, just taking care of that issue, yeah. We, we waste about, in the United States, across all different food items, about 40% of edible food is wasted. That's crazy. enormous, right? So, yeah. Yeah, and if we, cut, if we could recoup that, I mean, I'm sure there would be less hunger. Mm-hmm. Um, we, could be, we could be helping so many different issues if we went to that end rather than worrying about how we make all this stuff. Because mm-hmm. the... The, the amount of efficiency and the, the, the statistics and the things I've learned mm-hmm. here, it's like, I already knew that it was good, but the care that the, the ranchers take, the care that you take to, to make sure that, you know, the, the numbers are right, and that mm-hmm. there's, there's true data coming out of this, it's so interesting. Are you seeing, uh, you said something, you said pharmaceuticals and heart valves. Can mm. you delve deeper <laughs> into that? Yeah, yeah. So that was something that I hadn't seen before, but I went to... Uh, uh, packing plant in California this this summer, and that's part of you know I know again some people don't want to hear that, but I think it's important that like we do if we're going to take these animals' lives that we respect them and that we use everything right. Right. And so that was one of the things that they were doing is essentially, you think about the heart. There's a there's a membrane that it's around. It's called the pericardium, and for whatever reason in cattle that that membrane is very similar to the internal heart valves that we have. As, as people. So they're able to take that membrane and actually cut it into the shapes that they need for people's hearts. Really? Uh, heart valves. So, and it lasts longer than, you know, the other source is often pig heart valves because pigs are very similar to us, but they last longer than the pig ones. And again, it's just, it's one of those little things of like, you're not thinking when you're eating your brisket, oh yeah, I'm also supporting, you know, a heart valve that went to somebody, but you kind of are, right? You're supporting a landscape that is probably, you know, taking carbon out of the atmosphere, you're supporting you know, the rural livelihoods, and you're obviously getting good nutrition and hopefully a good eating experience. So that's kind of that surround sound of what we want to tell people is just like, 
there's so many things connected to this this food item, including you know these other benefits that we get from animals. Well, and in Texas, you know, we have a lot of Mexican culture, South American, and so there are even places. There's only a few because they had to be kind of grandfathered into the system, but they'll take an entire cow head, mm-hmm. bury it in the ground with coals, and make the barbacoa, the, the mm-hmm. cheek meat, mm-hmm. and things like that. So I, I love, you know, the tongue, the mm-hmm. lengua. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love seeing other states, other places start mm-hmm. to pick up on, oh, there's these delicious parts of the animal Absolutely. that, you know, people want to be kind of offended by it at first, or they want to say, ooh, tongue, mm-hmm. and then they eat it, and they're like, oh, this is incredible. Yeah, it, that's a big muscle, and yeah. it doesn't taste that bad, does it? Yeah, it, exactly. It, you just have to take the... the the taste buds off. Mm-hmm. That's a really mm-hmm. interesting process too, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. It, it's, it's so crazy to see just the price of tongue, the t- price of mm-hmm. cheek in the grocery stores. It's not exploding, but it is, it's going up a little right. bit, which means more it's getting more popular. Are, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I hate to see, you know, I love to see uh, the, the shelves kind of emptying, especially in Texas. Mm-hmm. We have a big brand called HEB mm-hmm. and they do a great job. You know, uh, three of the biggest, uh, beef seller selling HEBs are within a few miles of my house. So I get to go there and you just see the steaks are flying off the shelves. The the butchers will they'll grind beef at different sizes for you. They'll mm-hmm. slice steaks for you. If you if, if there's no more cowboy steaks, they'll go in the back and make you one. Mm-hmm. And the the beauty of uh you know we talked about efficiency. I love cooking a steak and splitting with people, mm-hmm. going out and splitting a burger, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. I, I think the I'm obsessed with sharing mm-hmm. and and not just like everyone gets their own plate mm-hmm. and where i love the idea of just putting a bunch of plates in the middle of oh, the yeah. table make it family style and it's more about that experience right and that's that's always been true right of all of us coming together over food and i think that's why you know on the the side of the issues that i deal with i think that's why people get so passionate about it because food is more than just you know just nutrition or calories that you're putting in your body it's it's about all those things right it's about culture and and everything that we bring with it do you see that a lot the kind of the, the that flipping to, to more family style where you're going? Um, I think, yeah, I think we do. And I think some of those culinary trends or, you know, like Korean barbecue or whatever, and actually having it be, you know, that kind of, you know, shared experience at the table, yeah. that type of thing. Yeah, I think we see some of that that happening. Mm-hmm. So you're also, uh, you know, you, you know so much about this industry. Are you seeing technology impact, you know, from the ranchers to the slaughterhouse? Are you seeing technology being used because I talked to the ranchers and they they mentioned it a little bit but I'm sure you're seeing some of the newest tech that comes out oh yeah yeah and there's so many there's so many companies that are interested in getting their new technologies on ranches I mean everything from drones we do have a lot of producers spoken to a few producers in California that will use drones either to monitor their cattle or even to move their cattle like you know some of the topography and like the coastal range of California is quite uh, quite steep in some areas, yeah. right? So you can actually use drones to kind of move cattle to the next paddock or, you know, those, really? those type of things. And they'll follow the drone. Well, they, they, I think it's the noise of it kind of sounds like a fly or something. So like, what the heck is this, right? So they move they move with um, with the, those That's those something drones. I need to get a video of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we always use drones when we fly over, you know, cattle pastures, right? It's a great, great overhead shot. But um, so, yeah, stuff from that to... You know, some of the technology we use is more, again, it's about that knowledge base. Like the genetics piece is super advanced in beef, right? We can just pull a hair sample from cattle, um, uh, get that kind of that genotyping of that animal, and, and our producers use that information to make a lot more informed decisions about, you know, what bull do I want to select for my animals? And it's all about, a lot of it's about having the consumer in mind, right? I want to select animals that are going to marble even more or be more tender, yeah. right? 
um, genetics has driven a lot of that in the, in the industry. And so that's a huge area of technology. And again, that's kind of um, from genotyping to big data is merging all that together. Um, so there's so much, yeah, there's so much technology in agriculture. Well, and there were a, a couple things, uh, like you were talking about the marbling, that you can actually get numbers about. They were also talking about docility and how, mm-hmm. you know, making sure the herd it's calm. Mm-hmm. It helps. Like if you have a troublemaker in there, mm-hmm. everyone's stressed out, mm-hmm. and it, it hurts the process. Uh, are there are there terms like? It, it sounds like even at auction, when when they're selling a stud, they can say, "Hey, this is you know our best marbling mm-hmm. stud. He's got the genetics." Yeah. Uh, is that is that literally just a DNA sample? Is that a lot of work to get that data? So yeah, it's it's DNA and it's. Um and it's all the data that our producers have collected over time, right? So it's, it's creating correlations between what we call, to get technical, right? It's called the phenotype, right? How an animal displays itself. So like docility, like you mentioned, right? This animal is calm. You know, we score it, you know, whatever it may be, one to four. She's a two, you know, and, and that over time, that, that, that builds up that information base where our producers can make decisions. And so they actually have statistics that they use. Kind of think of it like, like a baseball card. You know, and all the stats, the RBIs, and all that kind of thing. Yeah. We'll do the same thing with with cattle, and so it's kind of like Moneyball for cattle. That's what our producers are doing, right? They're they're making those decisions of like, this is what I need on my ranch, right? I need animals feed efficient. I want good marbling, and I want docility or whatever traits they may be, and then they chase after that. Now, this is a fun question. I just thought of, uh, you know, you see uh, my 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 mother's Israeli, and you can go to Israel and you'll see a family with dark hair, dark eyes, dark skin, and they'll have two kids that are redheaded with freckles. Is there that kind of, you know, a, a weird expression of genetics sometimes in the cattle industry? Are you seeing things like that, or is it pretty st- uh, consistent? Yeah, so of course with like certified Angus beef has actually had a big influence on, when you drive around the landscape now, you see a lot more black-hatted cattle. Right. And that's been a market signal, right? People, people associate that with quality, and so, they select for that. But of course, there's also the red Angus breed, which is literally, they're the same animals, but they're just, they're red, right? right. So yeah, there's all those kind of expressions of variation, right? And that's where, um, whether we're talking about plant or animal breeding, it's, it's taking advantage of that robust genetic variation that exists in the world is, is where we're finding the progress. So, but you're not necessarily saying like a black Angus give birth to a spotted or a striped or... No, That no. doesn't really happen. Yeah, no. For black Angus, uh, they're going to have, they're going to have black Angus, black am- uh, um, offspring. But again, there are, you know, other breeds like limousines, right, that they've selected. Okay, we want to have black hided cattle, right? So, yeah, you can, some of those traits are what we call simple traits where, you know, it's either A or B, right? It's kind of the, what you're what you're thinking about, yeah, probably, exactly. right? Um, and sometimes they're more complicated, right? Some of these performance traits, like feed efficiency, it's not just one gene; it's a whole bunch of genes. And so then that makes it more hard, right? So uh, things, for example, like no horns is a simple trait, right? It's the the dominant trait. Um, so we we can know we don't want to have horns. You know, two animals that. That, that getting together, you can you can make that decision and be intelligent about it. Really, yeah. And uh, I've always wondered, uh, you know, Texas is all about the Longhorn. Uh, is that 
was that kind of the opposite where they're like we're going to take this horn trade and push it to its limits or is that kind of a natural yeah, thing yeah that's kind of i think that's those those cattle i don't know the total breed history of that i think they're kind of the, the animals the remnants of the spanish cattle that came over right in terms of the longhorns yeah. um yeah i mean they're crazy they can't even I don't, I don't even know how you move them like they wouldn't yeah. even fit into a they're more of the iconic right yeah. that's their that's their value um you know and that's something in the dairy industry uh, Holsteins, most people don't realize, the black and white cattle that everybody associates with, with dairy, um, they actually mostly have horns. And so that's one of those challenges in the dairy industry is like we had to dehorn cattle because it's a safety issue if you're right. working around animals all the while. It's also some cows, you know, speaking from experience, if a cow does have a horn, she knows she does and she like beats up on the other cows, you know, so you, you want to, yeah. 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 It's, it's like when when uh, when I was in school, they, they switched from... Uh, lots of rocks in the playground to like that kind of soft matting <laughs> and that's that saved a lot of eyes yeah, and ears yeah. and teeth and yeah. uh you know if it's there yeah you know, yeah yeah some people will or curious. some people or animals will exploit that right yeah so when you talk about genetics is this is it similar to to humans as far as the number of um i, I don't know what you call them links or the, the number of data points is it uh is that is that a double helix pretty much the same thing yeah and, and, all, and all my my genetics colleagues would would be uh, appalled but I'm not that that good of a explainer of some of this but in terms of the basics and the basics of uh, you know sexual reproduction in terms of that comb- recombination of DNA yeah that's the same and that's where this genomics piece of taking the the, the hair sample and getting some DNA from an animal is helpful because in the past what we just assumed is you know what you're getting half your dna from mom half from dad we're not sure what traits you got from mom and mom or dad we just use statistical methods to estimate that and that's how genetic uh, selection was in the past but now we can take actually a dna sample and look at those major areas of the the genome of the animal that we know contribute to these traits that we're interested in so it's just like it's, it's increasing the accuracy of those those money ball decisions that our cattle producers are making. I love that idea of like money ball cows. <laughs> yes. Are, are you, now I'm guessing you, you have a mixture of, uh, you know, spreadsheets, Excel type stuff, and then proprietary software. Are you, are you crunching the numbers in more of a traditional place or do you have almost like your own data software that you use yeah so a lot of stuff that i do is honestly it's just basic excel stuff when i'm when i'm looking at some of our data and then for some of our what we call life cycle assessment research that is kind of what it sounds like you look at the whole life cycle of a product so for cattle it's like from grass to plate um that research we've been collaborating with folks at university of arkansas and they use proprietary software it gets really complicated because the beef industry is complicated and you're trying to model or represent all that complexity and all the interactions. So those models get really big and cumbersome. Um, it takes some computing power to run it, but it's, sure. yeah, that's that's what we what we do. Uh, well, and after talking to everyone, I, I didn't realize that there are times where the rancher will own the cow through slaughter. Mm-hmm. So they want to know from that ear tag, mm-hmm. exactly how they graded, exactly, you mm-hmm. know, if it came out of certified Angus product. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it interesting to see, I mean, that, that's gotta be so much data. Uh, is it interesting to see those trends and to kind of have all the graphs? Like, are you seeing, you know, everything is generally trending more towards prime, more towards high choice. Um, is that something, can we keep that trend up? Are we gonna get to some crazy 50% or 70% of uh, 
yeah. product? Yeah. So, I mean, right now, 80% of the U.S. beef supply, the fed cattle that we finish in feedlots, are either grading USDA choice or prime. So, I mean, we're already at this historic wow. high. Most of that's happened in the last 10, 15 years, and that really has been driven by genetics. Again, it's, it's no coincidence that when we started getting these genomically enhanced ways of looking at uh, of the cattle's actual genome and understanding that expression, that that's really when this took off, right? So I think that kind of um, that quality is going to maintain or even grow a little bit further. And then what we're going to be doing is making the animals more efficient and getting all these other traits that we care about on top of it. And so, and of that, um, I think it was three out of 10 are certified Angus. Yeah, it's really high. Well, it's, yeah, it's um, out of that, that, of that quality group. Yeah. So I think we're at like uh, 1.25 billion pounds of certified Angus beef. That's wow. Almost like five percent of the U.S. beef production, right? So it's huge. It's huge, and yeah. So that's that's what the beef industry and producers. If people, when they go to the grocery store, when they go to a restaurant, they they with their dollar vote for that food product, and they send that signal back down to the cow calf producer, like we like this product, they will respond, right? And that's just kind of how that market works. Well, and, and we're talking about that this cattle that from Texas to North Dakota is being raised, you know, like you said, all 50 states, is there, are the, are they just that adaptable? I mean, I, I can't imagine a, a black cow in Texas <laughs> is going to get really hot, mm-hmm. but at the same time, that rumen mm-hmm. can create all the heat to protect them in a blizzard. Mm-hmm. So is that, is that, are they just that adaptable or are they, do you see kind of a differentiation in the genetics depending on the climate? You do see differences in genetics around the United States. So like I mentioned earlier, Florida, when you go to Florida and you look at cattle, you'll notice they kind of look like they have longer ears and they kind of have what we call like a dewlap, like this part of their, their chest, that sticks, chest out, thing, yeah, yeah. that sticks out a bit more, a little bit of a hump on their back. So those animals are influenced by Brahmin cattle, by Bos Indicus cattle. Um, and that gives you some sort of, you know, a little bit more heat tolerance. Yeah. And so when you go to the southern U.S., you'll see some more of those cattle that look like that. Because it's the trade-off with the producers of like, yeah, they would love to raise straight bred Angus cattle, but to your point, right, those animals originally came from Scotland, right? So when they go to Florida, they're a little bit out of their environment that they adapted to. Um, but that said, even within the population of Angus or if we're crossbreeding animals, we can, we can fit animals to an environment. The bovine is amazingly adaptable, and that's a lot of the research that's done at universities is figuring out and what are those traits um, that producers can select for and also what our ranchers implement. A lot of what they'll do is just like, if this cow doesn't bring home a calf this year and she doesn't do well and I'd have to feed her, she's going to leave my ranch, right? I want a cow that really thrives wherever I am. And when our producers do that, they really shape and mold their herd to what fits best. And it's also really interesting to hear, uh, I was talking to some ranchers who do auctions and they do those things and they're selling, you know, they'll sell 300 studs all over the country. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, I've had, this whole time I've been asking uh, fans of the show and people following mm-hmm. me on Instagram to send me questions. And mm-hmm. one of them was talking about genetics and more of a, uh, you know, if you, if you have the same cows breeding all the time, that can create problems, right? 
So is 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 one of the reasons people are kind of selling their their herd across the country? Is that part of kind of the diversification? Or? Yeah, and that's and that's a part of the industry we call seed stock producers, right? So it is the seed for the next right. generation of stock, right? And so that's a specialized segment of the cow calf system. Um, and we have those producers all over the country too that will um, sell bulls typically and people will come from all over, right, to do that. So that's that's kind of how the industry is based. We're like a bull-based industry where people will select the bull they want, whether they'll buy the live animal or, of course, the other thing is using artificial insemination, right, where you look through a catalog and you're like, that's the best bull for me. And you may buy it from a from a company in terms of a straw of semen and that's what you use, right? Really? Um, so that's way more popular in the dairy industry. It's becoming more popular in the beef industry. Um, but just due to the, the kind of extensive outdoor nature of the, the beef industry, people still like to use bulls because like, you know, buy the bull, make him go out and do all the work, right? Um, it's kind of roughly one, one bull to every 25 cows is kind right. of the industry average. Sounds like a party. Use. Yeah, they lose a lot of weight. The bulls lose a lot of weight over the course of the breeding season. It's a lot of work. <laughs> yes. Uh, and are you seeing, is there a, I'm guessing the diversification is more, is crazy, but are there ways to track and say, oh, these two are too closely related or are people mm-hmm. changing it up so much that that's not really a problem? Yeah, yeah. So so tracking inbreeding, right, is definitely something that's done in the industry and making sure that we know, you know, the the lines of, of animals, the pedigrees is what we call it, right, of those different animals. So absolutely, because we know we can get into issues, talking about genetics in the past of, of uh, if we have, you know, back to your question about traits, if we have a, an issue with a genetic defect, for example, right, we need to know that too. And, and know that we can't breed, you know, this cow with this bull because then that, that offspring may have the defect, right? So those are the type of things that we're tracking too just like there is in any organism, right? You may have a genetic defect that is uh, not good. So it all comes back to having more knowledge, collecting more data allows those producers to make better decisions. Incredible. Well, so I ask everyone on the show, what's your message? Uh, Usually it's to people who are barbecue enthusiasts, but what's your message to someone who's interested in becoming a doctor in um, cattle science and to large animals. So what, what's your message to those people who are, they might be in college right now, see your name pop up on a podcast and they yeah, want to yeah. get into what you're doing. Yeah. So I think um, it is a really cool industry to be a part of and agriculture is exciting and it's always something different. And the beef industry is, you know, again, it's one of the largest segments of the of U.S. agriculture and it's very, uh, things are changing, right? And it's an exciting place to be from from being somebody that specializes in genetics or animal nutrition or or health, or the marketing and business side. There's so many career opportunities um, outside of all the culinary stuff, right? In terms of thinking about what beef means and all the different uh, ways that you can be involved. Well, Dr. Place, you are a wealth of information. I know we have other things to do, but uh, I appreciate you taking the time and uh, hopefully the fans can reach out. I'll I'll put your social media into the the episode and I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was amazing. Hey, they come in and meet man. Y'all to see me eat man. Hey, they come meet man. Y'all to see me eat man. I got jaws like a bear trap, a teeth like a razor. I made tack tongue with a sensitive taster. I was born out in Texas called the land of beef. Never catch a muscle greener, showing the hell I'd like to meet him to meet man. Y'all to see me eat man.